0: everybody. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I am your host, Eliza Kelly, and I am delighted to introduce today's guest, an Aquarius. We love to see it. Her name is Mickey Agrawal, and she is the founder of Thinks, of Tushy, and the author of two books, uh, bestseller Do Cool Shit, and Disrupt Her, which is now available in paperback, which is amazing because that means you can easily shove it into Your backpack when you're on the subway getting jammed by everybody's elbows so (laughs) it is nice to meet you thank you so much for being here
1: oh my gosh so happy to be here
0: so i was just before we started recording i just mentioned to mickey that in a past life uh in 2013 an investor in my in my company align the astrology dating app actually introduced us And we could not figure out if 2013 was eight years ago or seven years ago or a decade ago. I completely have lost track of time basically since the 2016 election. And I just think of it as before and after personally. But so it was before the 2016 election. Um, But since that time that we were introduced, at least from the timeline that I've constructed in my head, you have basically created this incredible empire surrounding. Um, stuff that people don't really know how to talk about, which is amazing. Um, the things I, I know that when it first launched, the marketing and the visual graphics surrounding it was just absolutely extraordinary and so eye-catching. And I know that our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear about your story and your genesis and how you became who you are. So I'm passing to you to hear about your journey.
1: I would say that um, I mean I was born and raised in Montreal, Canada, to a Japanese mother and an Indian father from India, and um, you know grew up was born as an identical twin, so I have a twin sister um, and a third sister who's eleven months older than us. So we're we're actually Irish triplets. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. So it's it's kind of wild to think that my parents had three of us in one year because I have a two-year-old. And the thought of having two more toddlers, uh, at the, who are the same age at the same time without any help, my mom had no help um, with, I mean, my dad, my dad was at work. And so my mom was stay at home mom. And it was just a while to, to just understand how, how incredible and, and powerful, you know, just being a mother is and how important it is to, and committed it is to, to be a stay at home mom. So, um, so, yeah, so grew up in Montreal, and, um, you know, I think growing up in Montreal, you know, Monday to Friday, I had French school, Saturday I had Japanese school, and Sunday I had Hindi school. So I went to school seven days a week. My, my parents kind of tricked us into believing that all children went to school seven days a week and <laughs> um and we were just like, cool, because we had you know something to do every day, and it was it was actually fun. And um, I would say the 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 big defining thing in my life was, um, when I was four, when we were four years old, our, our parents gave us sort of an option. Either you can do Indian dance called Bharat Natyam, or you could do, uh, play soccer. <laughs> and we were like, soccer! And so we started playing soccer, at four years old, whenever I say we, it's my sister and my twin sister and I mainly. And um, played soccer, you know, at the highest competition, starting very, very young. You know, I went to college actually for soccer. We went to Cornell, both of us, uh, recruited together um, to go play to play soccer division one. And so, um, I would say so many of my lessons, you know, as an entrepreneur, as you know, someone who's dealt with a lot of, you know, just ups and downs of, of, of life. Um, You know, having, having a game like soccer, where you have to put your head back in the game after every play, you might win or lose a ball, but, you know, the next play you have to be, had to have your head back in the game. And so I think that was really, really helpful to, to, you know, um, later in life as an entrepreneur to, to, to have that athletic background and backdrop. Um, also growing up, I would say a a huge thing, you know, that, um, I, I witness. You know, we we just kind of are observers to our parents and are observers to what they do and how they how they operate. And so much of that it just just seeps in, um, often unbeknownst to us. And I think you know, and then and then it kind of comes later. That's like, oh wait, this came from that, or this. You know, so so much. I think of our creativity and and passion and you know the the, the need for solving problems. I think started by just watching our parents. Um, solve problems, just simple problems, just in in, in our community. I mean, growing up, um, you know, my parents wanted to put us in a gifted children's summer camp. And, you know, being Indian Japanese, they just wanted like a studies summer camp, you know, (laughs) and they couldn't find one. It was like sports camp or day camp, but it was just like regular camps or whatever. But there wasn't any like summer camp where you did like, you know, science and math and sports and all these other things. And so, my parents took it upon themselves, specifically my mom to start, you know, Montreal's first gifted children summer camp in, in like the or mid mid eighties. And, um, it, it grew and, it, and they had 500 children for, for many, many, many years and, uh, 15 years. And, and it was really a defining thing for us to, to see our, our you know, there'd be a problem in the world in society, in our small community, and then and then have our our parents. My mom had you know barely spoke English, spoke like hello. My name is Mide. I'm from Japan, and she's like super sweet and timid. And my dad's like hello, what is your name? I'm from India. You know that's my father. <laughs> and to see them, you know, just not complain and 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 just see a problem and then say hey, you know, I'm as much as somebody as 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 anybody. So I'm going to try and solve it. And and they did. And same thing, you know, growing up there was. Um, you know, we, you know, electronics was becoming sort of the future and, and, you know, the Commodore 64 was the first computer in the early eighties that was making its way. I don't know if it was probably before your time, but there was like cassette tapes that you would put in and it would take 30 minutes to load. And, you know, the game of Snoopy, you know, would play or, or where in the world is Carmen Sandiego and all these games. Um, but it took, you know, it was cassette tapes and there was a floppy disks and all these things. And, You know, my, my father being an aeronautical engineer, um, you know, he himself has like 30 plus patents, you know, in the aeronautical space, you know, he was like, oh, I think electronics is going to be the future for children for the next generation. This is before personal computers, before cell phones, before any of that existed, before email, before the internet, for all of it. And so he started, he and my mom decided to start a small company called tomorrow's professionals where, um, they made these electronic kits that had these like resistors and transistors and LED lights and diodes and switches and a breadboard and and you know alligator clips and speakers and and you can make like a burglar alarm and you can make all these lights that switched on and off and you can make things that's you know like that that lights that blinked and and you really learn sort of the building blocks of electronics. My mom you know made it look beautiful. My dad wrote the manual and they sold it all over Canada, and so it was again just witnessing them seeing a problem, seeing a need, um, making that realization and then connecting it to starting a product-based business and, uh, without any experience whatsoever. And so I think, you know, my father's, my father's side in India was just, you know, entrepreneurs through and through had a sari shop in the middle of Benares and Varanasi. Um, my mom's side, you know, her father was president of Mitsubishi in Japan. And so just came from sort of a business, business background. Um, And so so then, you know, fast forward, you know, played soccer all four years in college and then went, uh, worked in investment banking at 22 years old, got a job in investment banking. And um, that was sort of a big defining moment again for me was when I was 22 years old and and my subway stop every single morning was to World Trade Center. And I just started my job. I spent two and a half months training for, um, to become an investment banking analyst at Deutsche Bank. And um, which was located directly across to World Trade Center, and I started a, the first week of September in two thousand and one, and so um, cut to nine eleven, and um, you know, so pre pre nine eleven, I would I would basically one of my girlfriends from Cornell got a job on the hundredth floor. Oh of goodness. of world trade center too. Um, and, um, and she and I would often meet up and, and get tea at two world trade centers cafe. And then I would go walk across the street and she would walk, you know, go up a hundred, floors to her office. And, um, nine 11 happened and 700 people in her office died on that day. And, um, two people in my office died on that day. And, um, it was the first and only day in my entire life still to this day that I slept through my alarm clock
0: and I just
1: missed the whole thing.
0: So were you in New York at that time?
1: Yeah. Yes. I was in New York at the time. Where were you in uh, the sitting? So I was actually flying back from Cornell. I was doing a recruiting, um, a recruitment trip at Cornell and I was supposed to come back. I was coming, I was on the six o'clock flight to be underneath 2 World trade center at 8.30 in the morning to be back at, at my office by nine o'clock. And I had the night before, cause I was 22 years old. I still had friends at Cornell, um, had my, like a few too many drinks, which I never do. And I just slept through the whole thing and missed the whole thing. And so I missed my flight. I missed everything. I was like freaking out when I, when I like woke up, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I remember like trying to call a car service to get, you know, just to get, to get there, just like just finding a way and all the lines were busy and everything was busy. And finally somebody, after I called like a thousandth time, you know, the, the car service people picked up and I just said, I need a car, I need a car. And they were like, turn your TV on click.
0: Oh my goodness.
1: And that was it. They just, and then I was like, you know, out of context, we have no idea what's happening. Like, turn your TV, like what is happening. And then all of a sudden like, I check my phone and it's like, and I'm an email and it's like, I have hundreds missed calls. I have all these emails being like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And my boyfriend from college was a Marine and he had called my room at Cornell and he tracked me down And was so happy that I was safe and, and not, not there. And so I managed to get a ride back to the city, but then, but then all the, all the bridges were blocked. And so I couldn't go back to my house. I stayed at one of my managing director's house for a month. It was just a crazy time. And it was sort of, that was the time when I realized that the mystery of life was that you never know when it's going to end. Yeah. And that time was in that moment to make every moment count I'm with this now hat on. It was like now, you know? And so anyways, and so I wrote down three things I wanted to do with my life. And the first was to play soccer professionally. And the second was to make movies. And the third was to start a business. And um, I found out while I was working investment banking that the New York Magic was holding tryouts for the soccer team. It was. It was. You know, um, the WSA league. It was a farm. It was sort of like the feeder team to the to the New York Power, and um, and I was, you know, like, all right, this is my dream. I'm going to go do it. Fuck it. You know, life short. Like, you know, it could it could end tomorrow? Like, mm-hmm. actually, it could end tomorrow. And so I had basically, you know, befriended my car service guys outside at the investment bank. I befriended the door people, and I sort of said to them. I, you know, I'd stuck in my soccer bag and I just gave it to the door people. And I said at five o'clock, I want you to bring my soccer bag to this car service, my guy, as car service guy there, he knows to like drive down the block with my bag. And I'm going to go down the block, pretend like I'm going to FedEx. <laughs> and I'm going to just like jump in the car and you're going to go to my tryout. And, um, and basically we did that for two and a half months because basically at every tryout, they would cut people. Cause they had a hundred women from top top D1 schools trying out for the league to, to make the team for the New York magic. And it was like, you know, North Carolina, like, you know, all the big, you know, teams that were trying out. And I just, and every time they would like, you know, they would post the, the team names on the wall of, of who was, who would be coming back to the next tryout. And my name would, keep being on there. And I was like, Oh my God. Okay. And I remember like, I'd have to like suit up in the car and like stretching in the car, like changing from my investment banking, like taking my pearls off and like putting on <laughs> my like suiting up and putting my cleats on and, and stretching in the car and like having a driver put like pump up music on. And I'm just like, you know, just getting myself psyched up for the, for the tryout against all these people who are there training and getting ready and like all day, like just, you know, getting ready for this tryout. And every time for two and a half months, my name would just be on that thing. And I would have the, again, my, 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 like my bag would be the, you know, the doorman and he would bring it to the car service guy and they all really want to help me fulfill my dream. And so I think that was sort of like, what was a a, a really compelling thing was they were like, oh, this is your dream and we, we can be part of fulfilling your dream. And so it was just a beautiful sort of game of like, you know, and then my my managing director at who I stayed at his house during 9-11, he played soccer in college too. So he kind of gave me the okay to kind of sneak out the back door to go and try out because it was his dream too, to be a professional soccer player. And so, so I just got, I went every day and I would come back to the bank after the car service guy would wait for me there after the tryout would take me back to the bank and I would work and finish my work till like 10 o'clock at night and do that twice a week for two and a half months. And at the end of the two and a half months, you know, um, you know, coach, Nino, he basically put the, you know, the, the starting lineup on the wall and he, well, actually he called it out at the final, the final one. How many people were
0: in the final one?
1: 20, it was like 20 players. It was around 20 players. And, and, you know, he called the starting lineup and there he, there I was starting lineup, starting right midfield. And, you know, I'm, t- I'm like five foot one, like, you know, like 110 pounds soaking wet. And, and the fact that like, you know, starting lineup right midfield was like my dream come true. And, um and I was like, fuck this. I'm going to quit my job. I was like getting all ready to like figure out ways to like, I'm done. But then I was like, no, let me just play my first game. Just see how it goes. What if what if he decides that he's gonna bench me because I'm too short and the other teammates are like really the other the opponents are really tall and they need big players for that game or I don't know. So I just kind of like just waited and before I told my boss I was like out. Even my boss was kind of like the one who gave me the, the, you know, the okay to go in the first place. But I just was like, I'm just not an investment banker. Like I just wasn't me. And so, but I was like, all right, let me just be, you know, do the, to the adult thing and just, you know, and and so I, and so I went played my first game. Um, it was, I went to college stadium. I'll never forget, you know, the whistle blows. I I get, you know, I sued up for, you know, as starting lineup, I'm like, okay, right midfield. And all of a sudden within, you know, um, the, the, the whistle blows and I get the ball and then, you know, juke past two players and pass the ball, you know, to, to, um, you know, the center midfield and he passes it back to me and I sprint up the side with the ball and then I cross it. And then the striker, boom, heads in the back of the net. And, um, and I had my first assist in the first eight minutes of the game. But in the moment that I crossed the ball, a defender on the opposing team came and slide tackled me. And then I heard the telltale snap and oh, no. I tore my, I tore my ACL. And so I was done for the season and I couldn't um, play for that year. And I try, It was like after two and a half months of like pain and suffering and all the trying out and the sneaking and the going back, going back. And it was just done. And I remember laying there because my sister, my twin sister had torn her ACL three times in college, first game freshman year, first game, junior year, preseason, senior year all on her period. And I did it mind mine on my period too, by the way, because our on our period where our ligaments are brittle and actually tears much faster. Had I known that I probably would have worn a brace or at least been anyways, it's a whole other thing. But, um, so I laid there just sobbing and, you know, it's carried off the field and I luckily didn't quit my job because I needed the very best health insurance and the very yeah. best, you know, physical therapy to get, to get back on my feet. And so I just, you know, through gritted teeth another year, of i had to go through the surgery and painful recovery it was like the most painful i did the patella one where anyways um and uh fast forward to you know i said fuck it, i'm gonna try again and so i tried out again the following year made the team again <laughs> made the starting lineup again and this time i was like fuck it, i'm quitting my job and so i just quit my job and i was like you know what I'm done with the bank. I'm a terrible investment banker. Like I shouldn't be here. Like I just suck at this job. And and um, and so I made the team, in the starting lineup, and then, um, literally, it was been one year, and I just for fun, um, on a on a weekend that we had off um, or no, it was a weekday. We, cause we played on the weekends and a weekday. One of my friends was like, you know, we're missing a girl in our, you know, come be a ringer on, on just like a fun pickup game. And I was like, yes, I was so happy to be back. I was so happy to be like practicing and playing. And then in that game tore my other ACL. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, universe, I got it. Not my calling. Fuck. Why does it have to be so painful? So, I had to go through surgery again. And luckily, I had um my health insurance for from the bank lasted for eighteen months. And so I got to basically get the surgery, get this get all the thing again. And I was like, done. I was okay. So the next thing on my list was to make movies. And so I dusted off my film resume and I started I started, you know, going after um going looking for production jobs, like, production, you know, associate producing on commercials, music videos, you know, I'd spent my summers in college, you know, working for the guys who produced Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin and all these funny movies. And, um, I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to be a film producer. I love storytelling. I love the arts. I love, you know, this, this space and that's, you know, my soccer, I did the best I could in soccer. I, I got to the highest level that I, I possibly could. And, and it was just, wasn't, it wasn't my calling. And so, Um, Just went for it fully, got a job as an associate producer at at a production company called Urban Myth Media in New York. And I realized after very quickly that I just wasn't a nine to fiver. And so I was like, I'm going to go and become a freelance production person and work my way up to freelance producing so I can be on jobs and then work when I wanted and then take some breaks when I wanted. And so, you know, working freelance is a very different thing because you don't know when your next job is coming, you know, when your next paycheck is coming. It's a very stressful experience. But if you're really good at what you did, then you can you can be pretty guaranteed that they'll hire you again on different jobs and so I started by picking up trash on the streets as a production assistant, driving directors around, getting producers coffee. This is like after you know, my, my Asian parents were freaking out because they were like, you were an investment banker. <laughs> it's so good and um and it was such a big like demotion like societally i guess but like spiritually it was a complete promotion it was a complete like freedom for me to try something different and, and be back in the you know on the ground floor trying to you know work my way up and and i made very everyone you know know very clear that i was like a you know investment banker and i was a cornell graduate and i can you know i can do this i can you know i can i can become an office person you know in production And so very quickly i worked from you know paing on set to then becoming an office production assistant, which was like photocopying and collating and putting the books together and calling all the people to be like, make sure you come on time and like getting all the people together. And then finally, very quickly, worked my way up to associate producer and then to producing small films and commercial music videos. And I was like, you know, production coordinating big jobs. You know, like, you know, at the time it was doing Calvin Klein and, you know, I did a Beyonce music video and I did a bunch of things and, uh, and P Diddy, all these things. He was anyways. Uh, <laughs> um, and so would love um, to stay on those stories as well, <laughs> but we yeah, could circle yeah, back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, And, um, that was when I had my first, aha uh, high idea of my first business, which was born out of a stomach ache, you know, on sets of commercials, music videos, we constantly eat these things called craft service. And, you know, craft service tables, you would have like you would eat like pigs in a blanket and pizza and M&Ms and like pretzels and just garbage, you know. And because I was still student loan debt and still crazed with so much, you know, like, you know, still worried about my paycheck and when when things were coming, I just would just eat that as my meals and I would go home with just horrifyingly bad stomach aches. And then finally one day, you know, I came home with a horrifying stomach ache and I just said, enough is enough. And I just researched it. And in my research discovered sort of the massive processed food industry that food, people were being, you know, just getting a, like more and more allergic to gluten, dairy, you know, all the sugar, the processed, all the, you know, antibiotics, the pesticides, the, you know, preservatives, all the stuff that was in food, people were just getting more and more and more intolerant. And I was like, oh my God. Then I started researching the industry that I like was in love with when it came to food. And I had to give up too because it was causing just so much bloating and gas and awfulness, which was the pizza industry. And every time I ate a slice of pizza, like the cheese and the bread and the ugh, I would just have horror. I would just be just no one could be around me for like two hours after because I would just be gassy. <laughs> and so You know, just, um, you know, did some research and my research discovered the pizza industry is a $32 billion industry. Americans eat a hundred acres of pizza every day. And then, you know, too much pizza, just too much pizza. And then just,
0: (laughs) I, I, I'm a native New Yorker, so I really, really appreciate pizza, but I don't want my pizza measured in acreages. I would rather in slices. That's disgusting.
1: (laughs) Totally. Totally. Well, I mean, the story is getting really long, but just, just to, to, to fast forward through it, you know, um, you know, realized that I was like, oh, my God, my first idea is like an alternative pizza concept. And so I created, you know, New York City's first gluten-free farm-to-table pizza concept. My book, Do Cool Shit, really talks about how I raised the money for the first time, how I got press for the first time, how I got Florence Fabricant for the New York Times to actually come and cover my little dinky pizza shop in the Upper East Side. It was just a whole crazy set of wild adventures just to raise the money, get the capital, get the location. You know, was up against like all these Starbucks and Do- Dunkin' Donuts. And I was like, you know, them against me. Obviously they got the leases. And so I would just get the shitty lease offerings. And it was just such a hard, 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 hard experience open up a restaurant as my first entrepreneurial endeavor. But I think that really, really set the stage for for, for, for me to start things and then now Tushy um, and to really shift, you know, to really understand the nuances of what it takes to storytell. So, so really, if you think about like, what the experiences in the past you know Steve Jobs always talked about like you can't connect the dots looking forward but you can always connect the dots looking backwards you know the investment banking job really gave me that financial understanding prior to that, the soccer gave me the ability to push through any painful you know like losing of a play and then getting back up so sports gave me that you know investment banking gave me the credibility to raise money and to have capital and to really understand the game of money and to put together financial models and spreadsheets and those kinds of things you know Working in the film production industry, you know, really, really taught me how to, you know, get something done on time, how to produce something, how to produce a product, a project in a timely fashion, how to hire people, how to get everything together, how to get the budget, do everything within budget. So I learned about how to like project manage in film. And then when I started my restaurants, I really got the understanding of how to talk about something that's taboo and how to get people that people are so charged up about things like food. Don't tell me how to eat. I'm an adult. Don't tell me how to eat. I would get, you know, it's such a sensitive topic, like how to talk about food and how people are eating. And when I want to create the New York City's first alternative pizza concept offering organic ingredients and gluten free flours and hormone free cheeses, local seasonal toppings, the concept of organic, local, seasonal, that was just not a topic in 2003 and 2004. And people were like, oh, organic, it probably tastes like cardboard. <laughs> Only like offerings that existed were like, like these mom and pop, like. Uh, nature, food groceries, where everyone wore Birkenstocks and like everyone kind of smelled like patchouli, and it was just like everything was like tasted like cardboard, you know. And so you, you, no one expected organic and natural and local or in, in seasonal and those terms to mean delicious and vibrant and better for you. And so it was such an uphill learning curve from from 2005 when I opened my restaurant to 2013, which is when I basically handed it over to my partner that time period it was like you know, seven, eight years of running my restaurants myself with my team, just like being in my restaurants day in, day out, doing deliveries, doing customer, you know, taking the tickets, making pizzas. People didn't show up. I had to, you know, like fill in and run, be on the line and like make food. And even if I've never made food in my life, I just figured it out. Like just all the everything, you know, having to raise the money, just get get anyone to come in, you know, the press, like fucking up the first time and having lines around the corner because we had we got pressed too early. So then we' just screwed it all up. And so we had to like, then I had to write a handwritten letter. I wrote 5,000, like I, I hand wrote a letter and then photocopied it 5,000 times and delivered it to every apartment in the neighborhood to be like, you know, I know it must be, you know, this is my first time, you know, owning a business. You know, I'm sorry if it, if things weren't perfect. Like, I'd love for you to come back and give me a second chance. Like who does, like, I just was like in desperation trying to figure, and then they all came back because they were like, oh, you know, they never like, have you ever received a letter from like your local pizza shop being like, come back again, I'll do better. Like, <laughs> you know, it just, you know, so I think in the cry for, you know, just like, please come back. I think people really, you know, wanted to support. And in that process of of being in my restaurant day in, day out, I just learned about hangry people, how to deal with people, people's just emotionality. And they're like yelling at you for their food. And you're just like, I, you ordered this pizza. It's like, no, I didn't. I ordered this pizza. And you're like, <laughs> but I I literally wrote it down as you were saying, I mean, no, ah! And you're like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, you're right. I'll, I'll make another one. No problem. Like, just being able to, like, really, really tend to, and then, of course, the New York City Department of Sanitation would come in and, like, you have sauce on your apron, $1,000 fine. And you're like, but that's the point of an apron. Like, it was just so much just, like, Ah Ahness. Um, and also just learning about the nuances of how to talk about things and how to talk about things in a really careful way and how to get people to discover your product. And and so much of my thesis with Thinks and Tushy was born from from building Slice now called Wilds. And, you know, it was like really having it was a sort of a three prong thesis that sort of th- was threaded throughout all the businesses. And the first prong of the thesis is, you know, a best in class product. It has to be delicious. It has to be beautiful. It has to, it has to, it has to just be a great product. Like when you bite into it, it has to have the crunch. It has to feel like, oh my God, this is the most delicious pizza I've ever had. You know, so best in class product. Number one, can't, can't be like, eh, it's good enough. It's good. It's organic. So you can like, you know, people will, people will compromise because it's organic. No. It has to be the best in class, most delicious product, period. Um, the second prong, and ha- it has to be aesthetically beautiful. And, you know, um, I-, I learned that, you know, to create an environment that people feel safe to do something different, to try something new, it has to feel beautiful. You know, if you remember my, our think Subway ads in the same way, like people were talking about periods here and, and people were like, oh my God, those ads are gorgeous. And oh my God, they're talking about periods, but those ads are gorgeous. So like having something, you know, a beautiful environment, a beautiful aesthetic, a beautiful space is really, really important. And then the third prong Is accessible, relatable language. You know, it has to be accessible. It can't be so technical and heady and clinical and medical and academic about like being organic and this is how it affects your system and your, you know, all the, it has to be like, like you're texting your best friend. Like write to me, talk to me like you're texting your best friend. Don't talk to me in such a heady way because I won't get it. And so, you know, that thesis when, you know, when I finally handed the restaurant over to my partner, Waleed, who's amazing. He didn't steal from me. He didn't, he believes in karma. My first question to him was, do you believe in karma? And he said, you know, every time I have a bad thought, a bicycle run over my foot. Oh my God. <laughs> and so, And so that really helped me understand that he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't steal from me and he wouldn't, he would, he would be a great partner. And he has, he's been an incredible partner ever since. So it's then freed up my time to start things. And sort of that's when so much of the of all the dots from before really, really crystallized when 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 things you know started and, and and launched and grew, you know, and so much of the learnings, like, you know, we were we were still being a little too clinical and technical with with our with our things technology. And then we went to being super accessible in our language again. And again, the thesis of like what worked at, at, at the restaurants really carried forward with with things. And, and and then with the aesthetic, you know, we really we brought in epic designers from School of Visual Arts and Parsons who were artists and 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 photographers and creatives and not just like advertising and marketing like backgrounds like it was like artists and creatives to come and create like the beautiful aesthetic and and then you know really funny writers and so you know the tone is irreverent and funny and sort of you know like not taking ourselves too seriously like you're texting your best friend and then the aesthetic is still artful beautiful and considered With a best in class product. And so when you fast forward to now with Tushy, you know, my company Tushy, it's a best in class it's the best in class bidet product for $79. There is nothing on the market that's better than our product. We've thought through the angle of where the nozzle goes to spray your butt at the exact spot. You know, we thought about how it has to look like an iPhone. So it's not this like weird curvy thing. It's like this lovely, you know, rectangular, really symmetrical product that sits beautifully next to your toilet. The patch packaging is beautiful, the way you open it, unfold it, and then it makes you laugh because we just, you know, the, 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 con- the content is just really silly and funny and irreverent. I hired somebody from Upright Citizens Brigade, you know, to write all the, the copy for, for, for Tushy. And so, you know, so now when you're, you're experiencing our, our, our website, even if you go to hellotushy.com, by the way, do not go to tushy.com. It's a very graphic porn site. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Go to hellotushy.com. I feel um, like
0: that's like, uh, that could be in the office that as a concept of your domain being just like a f- four letters away from a very graphic porn site.
1: And it's an anal graphic porn site. It's very intense. So, <laughs> so we, one, one time we were like, maybe we should do a partnership with them, like clean, but like, you might as well. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, no, 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 Um, and so, so hello, com was sort of, um, a really, you know, if you go to the website now, you'll, you'll understand like it's aesthetically beautiful. It's irreverent and funny. If you read all the copy, you'll just want to, you'll giggle to yourself. And it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's exactly the tone that I feel really can create that cultural shift. So yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a long and winding story, but um, I'll stop there.
0: Hello, everybody. I wanted to swoop in and introduce you guys to a service that is always important but especially right now as we are navigating this very strange moment and everything is really uncertain and bizarre so the resource is betterhelp.com and it is a chat and video and text message service to connect with licensed therapists so that you can Receive the help that you need in a private and comfortable and COVID outbreak friendly way. I am a huge advocate of therapy I have been in therapy myself for a decade and I genuinely do not think that I would be able to do The majority of the work that I do as an astrologer if I wasn't also treating myself through traditional counseling services so for those of you guys who are between therapists, who are therapist, therapy curious, <laughs> uh, this is an amazing resource. And if you use the code that I have uh, through my partnership with them, you can get 10% off. So it is betterhelp.com slash stars like us. Uh, so again, that is help, com slash stars like us, and you will get 10% off through that URL. So don't be shy, take advantage of this. It's an amazing resource and opportunity. And I will ask, I mean, thank you for sharing your journey with us, because I think that's something that a lot of our younger listeners might not realize is th- how much of a process success is. And how many years you need to be exploring it. And time is just the ultimate teacher. When I look back on decisions I made when I was uh, 22, I'm like, wow, that was, those were, you know, I I didn't have as much perspective. When I look back on decisions I've made at 27, I think, wow, that wasn't enough perspective. And I know that in the future, I'll look back on decisions I'm making today and say, wow, I didn't have enough perspective. Because we continue to evolve and grow and learn but, you know, any overnight success story is most likely the story of somebody who is busting their ass for a very long time. And if it truly is an overnight success story, unfortunately, it's probably not going to sustain because that's not lasting success.
1: Um, or it's like it's like the Instagram story where it's it's like winning the lottery. Right. So right. it's like right time, right place, right product, right. Everything in the moment. And within two years, boom, sold for a billion. Bah. But that's like that's like that's like winning the lottery. That is like that. People are like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be the next. I'm I'm just going to build this company. I'm going to sell it. And I think like if you have that philosophy, you're doomed to be from the beginning. If your philosophy is I'm going to build something to sell it, that is, that is doomed to fail because you're not passionate about it. You're just passionate about the money that's going to come from it. And that's out of integrity and out of alignment. And so I think you have to be really, really passionate. Like for me, I'm so passionate about solving the glo- global sanitation crisis. I'm so passionate about saving the planet. You know, to date, Tushy has helped save 2 million trees from getting flushed down the toilet because of, you know, we're using you know, a bidet instead of toilet paper. You know, the average American uses fifty-seven sheets of toilet paper per day. And now, you know, with 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 Tushy, they're they're reducing their consumption by 80% of toilet paper because they're just having to pat dry with just a couple of squares because they're completely clean with a bidet. And um, and you're only using one pint of water with each use, it's all you need, versus you know, to make a single roll of toilet paper requires 37 gallons of water to make one roll of toilet paper. So people are like, What about the water issue? Well you're actually saving 55 gallons of water per week by using water instead of toilet paper. And you're not killing trees, you're not killing the planet, you're not using so much water, you're not wasting all the bleach, you're not using all the processes to wrap it and make it and then ship it over to you. It's just, you're buying a product one time for 79 bucks, you're attaching it to a toilet and you use it and it lasts forever. You know, it lasts for years and years and years. And so it's um, it's a no brainer. And so I think that I'm so passionate about you know the 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 fact that we are we, you know we're we're a product that can support the planet and we're a product that can support people you know right now there are 30 million combined cases of chronic urinary tract infections hemorrhoids anal fissures anal itching all these unmentionable things that are uncomfortable down there cuz you're using dry paper and you're smearing poop around and sitting on fecal matter all day long which then it's creeps up and <laughs> and it just creates all these issues and infections and diseases down there because people Don't want to think about it because it's taboo and therefore they're not talking about it, therefore they're not innovating. And so it's like if every part of our body is a part of our body that needs to be dealt with reverence, because that part of our body, you know, feels pleasure, that part of our body releases and excretes all the stuff our body doesn't need, that part of our body creates babies. I mean, for us to not have reverence for that part because society says that it's taboo to talk about then, you know, it's time to move on and move forward and 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 change the conversation because that part of our body is kind of the most important for us all to be here in the first place. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, and so um, a few months ago I, I sent a message to my father saying, you know, Daddy, like, you know, I've asked you for for years and years about your life and, and growing up in India and it was, what it was like and your family story and, and you'd always say, Never mind, never mind, don't worry, <laughs> And he would just just kind of not want to talk about it. And um, finally, as of a few months ago, you know, I sent him an email being like, Daddy, I just really want to know your story. And here are a series of questions I would like to have you answer. And I, and I hope you I hope you answer them finally. And because you know, I have a child and I want to be able to share our story of our lineage to to him. And and um, and there's so many holes in the story. So, so if you could, if you can just really, really honor that. And finally, he started writing every week. He's writing these long email installments of his life and what he was like growing up and what's so, you know, just what the hardships that he went through and the joys and the pain and all the ups and downs. And one of the things that he told me a couple of weeks ago is that, you know, he still sometimes has nightmares as a 72 year old man about, not having a clean toilet to go to in India, so you know there was a point in his life where their family you know lost their business and they had to move into this tiny little apartment and there was only outhouses available and all of them were dirty and disgusting and he couldn't find a clean toilet and he had to hold it in looking for a clean toilet and I didn't know that, and the fact that tushi has helped fifty seven thousand families already gain access to clean toilets in India I mean if that's not an epigenetic healing like I don't know. You know, it was like when I found that out, I started sobbing because I was like, oh my God, it was like in me. Like, it's like epigenetics are real. Like yeah. we feel the pain, even if we don't know, we know what our, our families are, are going through. And yeah. um, it was such a powerful thing to, to learn and to, to understand, um, you know, so much of, of, of who I am, I'm, I'm uncovering based on my father's upbringing, his entrepreneur, his father's story and his story. And um, it's been really, really powerful
0: i i I think that that's just such a beautiful way for us to to close this uh this episode because it it really is everything is interconnected, right? The mm-hmm. stories of you being exactly where you are in the moments that you were, your parents encouraging you to you know instilling this work ethic um and then where you come back full circle in the exact problems that you see in the world that you want to solve there are no i i have a one of my catchphrases if you will or there are no coincidences and mm-hmm. this is very much of there are no coincidences to find your way back into understanding this intergenerational trauma that your father experienced which was the issues relating to sanitation and and having like a clean space to be able to clean yourself you know that is such a human right you know it is such a human it's it's basic human it's it's dignity you know it's treating people with dignity and providing them with the services i my mom had me at 40 so i have my grandmother is in her early 90s and she's at a nursing home right now and it's a a topic for another time but it is a you know to i'm very grateful to be um, a young person in the relative scheme of life so who gets to see what happens when you are 90 and how mistreated elderly people are and how we just, you know, we let them sit in their own shit and in these, in pee puddles and just how disgusting it is. Somebody lives to be in their fucking nineties and we're treating them like that. Like these without so
1: much reverence, right? I mean like this is like,
0: like what an honor and like how much they have encountered throughout their journey for this to be in their final years to be just treated like this. and, I think that in the same way that we don't talk about our periods and we don't talk about the fact that we all shit and we don't talk about that we, you know, like our, our urinary issues like that then ends up resulting along with a lot of other things in why we are so in so much of the disrespect that ends up sort of coming back to us later in life. Because if you live long enough to be in your 90s and you're in a nursing home, which most people are because they have incontinence, they can't take care of themselves. Um, it's like you're you're almost like fucked. It's almost like what a what a sad ending to your journey. Um, and I'm seeing that now I'm 30. I have a lot of energy. I have like, you know, I, I'm putting things together and I know that the information that I'm receiving about this um, and is, is definitely going to inform a lot of future decisions that I make. But I would say that you know, I, I and I guess I'm very inspired from your story is just to pay attention to everything all the time and to mm-hmm. never stop questioning and to never lose critical thinking and to wonder, like, why do we treat people like this? Like, why is why do we treat old people like they're garbage? You know,
1: and it's it's even simpler than that. Like, why do we do everything that we do? Why do we wipe our butts with dry paper? Why do we, you know, believe that time is real? Like, why do we believe? So you know, it's like that's the reason why I wrote my book, Disrupt Her, and and you know, it's because it's like we just have been led to believe so many things to be true in quotes, in the world, and it's just all made up. Everything is made up. Time is made up. Money is made up. I and mean, the fact that we just had like daylight savings. It's like just all made up, you know what I mean? And 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 like money is just simply an energy exchange that we've agreed to is worth something, right? And and that we just borrow
0: in our lifetime. We don't own money, like it's we die and then it just goes away. Like we're not taking it, you know. We're not taking it with us into the afterlife. It's just not happening.
1: And it's like the same thing, the idea of property and the thing, idea of owning things and the idea of owning anything. It just, it feels really strange because we're all just, you know, inhabitants on the same planet. You know, the sun shines the same on each one of us. And so the fact that we're... You know, treated differently, we're handled differently, we're, ex- we're experiencing life differently based on where we're from and who it's just all complete smoke and mirrors. And so, my book Disruptor really, really looks at sort of all the conditioning that we have in 13 areas in our life, you know, be it money, be it career, be it relationships, all the important things, the culture of complaining, even the thinking about the patriarchy and feminism, all these topics that feel so like hard to talk about and taboo. Um, are, are looked at from a, from a lens of why are we conditioned to think these things right away? Like, what is that? Where does that come from? What's the historical context of this conditioning? And how can we go from conditioned to unconditioned so we can make up our own decisions for ourselves and have complete agency over our own lives? And we have autonomy, authority. We have, you know, full, full authority of our own lives, and yet we don't think we do. Right. And so it's just, you know, that this book really, really is that sort of like shaking you awake book that just sort of makes you realize like, holy shit, I, I can, I can, I, like the, the the world is my canvas and i can literally invent any possibility i want if i choose yes like i have to choose you know the the my my friend sent me the yoko ono and, and john lennon poster the the war is over if you want yeah you know the war is over if you want it's all a war within us it's all it's all everything is inside of us and it's like we can choose to see things one way or another way you know the, the, the little quote that i've been thinking so much about is is, you know, we don't have to do anything for everything to change. We don't have to do anything. We just have to change our perspective on everything, and we can be like, "Oh. And so that's, you know I'm so excited for 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 you and and for for those listening to read this book because I really am excited to see what happens when you do reclaim your agency. It's just a different, it's it's hard to it's a it's a it's not a cerebral thing it's an embodied thing mm-hmm. something that you have to feel and experience and not just like be like right 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 love yourself I got it or like <laughs> blah 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 like I get it. it's just like no you have to really feel it and I think that once we do once once all of these things are felt experiences that wait I could really invent any possibility that I want. It, it becomes a release, a softening, a deepening. You know, I, I just came back from a, a six-day silent meditation with Adi Ashanti. You know, we were just in silence for six days. And he just talked about how, you know, we were born to to want to know everything. Like, I need to know. We're taught that if we don't know an answer, that we're, we're bad and that we're going to fail in school and we're going to get punished if we don't know. We have to know everything. And he talked about how spirituality and just, spirituality is getting so comfortable and becoming so at ease with the unknown, with the not knowing all the answers and saying like, I surrender, I am completely at ease with the unknown. And like, may it just, you know, like unfold as it should, whether good or bad, it's all a beautiful you know, just information that I get to now take with me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what he talked about is like, again, a felt experience. Like all we have is now, literally it's all we have. We don't have tomorrow. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The past is in the rear view mirror. Like, yes, we can, we can sit there and deliberate. And you know, I just recently read the book, Louise Hayes book, You Can Heal Your Life. I'm I'm on this like three month d- journey of self, or, self or d- discovery right now. I'm calling it my, I call it my chrysalis and I'm reading this book, Louise Hayes book, and she's uh, called You Can Heal Your Life. And, 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 and the thing that she said in it was so powerful. She said, we, we have so much beauty in our life. We just have to look outside and just see the magic that we get to exist in. And yet we choose to play over and over again, these negative things that someone said about us or someone's doing, or this trolling about Trump or about this. And I can't believe that this is happening in the world. And it's just like, that's again, that's the lens in which we choose to see the world because there's so much sadness within us because we're not living our authentic truth. And so we just send hate and troll energy and negative energy and shit talk energy and shaming energy out to others because we don't feel so alive within our truth and ourselves. And it's like, once we recognize that, Hey, like like, just opening our eyes differently and being like, we're hurting ourselves every time we play anything negative or looping in our head that's of the past. It's not even now. Like, now is a new moment. Now is a new moment. I can change everything I, I want now and now again and now again and now again. And everything in the past is just a bunch of a story. It's like what happened happened. The rest is just a story. And so. God, it's so liberating and so relaxing and so like unbelievable to really, to really understand that that's, that's like when you're operating from that place of just like, this is all we have, like what changes, how do we look at life? It's just like, live each moment. Like it's your last. It actually becomes a felt experience.
0: Right. Without, I guess the balance is also then not, um, become bringing that into the fight or flight state of mind as well. You know, it's the acceptance of the now, you know, it's like just it's the it's the peace of the now rather That's than the it. I need to do something about the now. It's just the the silence or the noise or, yeah. you know, it's it, it's being yeah. in the now and whatever the now is offering um, and not trying to control the now.
1: Yeah, no. He said it's it's basically you know Adi Ashanti talks about how it's like it's either it's either cu- living with curiosity and discovery or living in gra- or or grasping for you know, to know the answer, grasping for in desperation to know what's going to happen with my life. Am I going to have a baby? Am I going to get, am I going to, am I going to keep this job? Am I going to, what should I do? Do I, if I don't like my job, what if, what's my next job going to look like? Oh, like, am I in the right relationship? What if, what if it's not the right relationship? Like all these, like, I need to know the answer. It's like, just live in curiosity and discovery. Or the alternative is to literally be grasping in desperation to know what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. Just if you just like surrender to the curiosity and discovery, gosh, everything changes. And yes, like it's a constant exploration for all of us. Like I, you know, it's something that I have to remind myself every single day that like, oh, like it's either grasping to know or discovery and curiosity. I choose this. I choose this every single day.
0: So where can we find you right now?
1: (sighs) You can find me right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, can, you can um check out my 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 Instagram. It is at Mickey Agrawal. Um, or you can go to my website, MickeyAggaral.com. I also, you know, if you go to my website, um, mickeyagrawal.com, you can sign up for a 52 Moves for free. Where if you sign up for, if you subscribe to my mailing list, you'll be put put in this um, beautiful sort of 52 Moves. You get one move a week that you get to do for your business, for your life that can really bring you in the right in the direction to where you want to go, whatever that direction is. Um, and it's completely free. You just have to subscribe and. And you get to have a move a week, and so it's 50, it's a fifty-two move week thing that's on the key. Is there overall. is
0: there a pun in there with bowel movements as well?
1: <laughs> we are. I actually creating. We're actually creating a bowel movement this year. A movement that really gets the bowels, like the conversation on bowels, like I'm. I I I've, I've with it. With the coronavirus, it's actually interesting. We've had some of our best days in company history because there's a run on toilet paper and people are like, oh my God, I need a bidet. So I don't have to run out of toilet paper and I can just clean my butt properly. Oh my and God. So we've yeah. Had, it's been a wild, weird, completely strange thing to see the psychology of what people are grasping to buy. Um, but hey, it's, it's good. It's, it's right. It's fine. I mean, it's working, it's working somehow right now. So if you're someone who's worried or, um, you know, or, or who, who just wants to literally genuinely have a cleaner hygienic experience, it's also, if you want a better itself. ass, <laughs> better, 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 you know, Yogi, Yogi Bhajan said, dirty butt, dirty mind, you know, you want a clean, butt. you want to have a crystal clean, butt to have a clear conscious, a clear mind, it's all connected. Yes. And so, um, check out Hello Tushy. So yeah, that's it.
0: Thank you so much, Mickey, this has been amazing.